Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 29, 2 Samuel chapter 19. Well, we began this rather long chapter of Second uh, Samuel 19 last week, and we're still not going to finish it today. Um, and in a few moments, we're going to we're going to read this chapter in its entirety. And 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 you know, while every word in the Bible is God breathed, mm-hmm. it's necessary. Yes. It's purposeful. It's enlightening. There are some chapters that stand out above the others. This is one of them. And you know, it seems as though for months the central topic of our study has been David and his rise from shepherd boy to king. And now we're studying the waning days of his reign. We've read of the of the many twists and turns of his personal victories and defeats and his life journey and if we're honest in our assessment David has proved himself to be an all too ordinary man at times who was elevated to extraordinary status simply due to God's sovereign decision and declaration the Jewish people have historically had a difficult time dealing with their image of David, you see, because they see him as the exact type of Messiah that they're to expect. And because they also see their Messiah as having to be perfect, rightly so, then they're forced to portray David as perfect. And so they go through fascinating gyrations to twist and turn David's obvious infidelities and character warts into pious positives. But because believers, Christians and Messianic Jews have met our Savior, Yeshua, we know that as much as God loved David, even a reincarnated David would never qualify as the Messiah. We readily admit that David was a precursor to Messiah, even a type, and that from his bloodlines would come the true Messiah. We also admit that David offered some good illustrations of Messiah, but also he demonstrated why Christ had to be God. Because a purely human redeemer could never be 100% sinless. We're going to be talking a lot about the parallels between David and Yeshua, a little bit about significant differences between the two. However, if anything set David apart from other men, it was his zeal and his great passion to do whatever he did to its fullest. He always loved God. He remained dedicated to God, even though he failed over and over again, because at times, especially as in the last several years of his life, he, he spit the bit out of his mouth. And he refused to be guided by his master, something Jesus never did. Now it's a reality of our fallen 
humanity that even the best of God's worshipers and leaders here on earth experience enormous failures. Sometimes visible, sometimes hidden. In fact, I would say that significant failures are probably part and parcel of those who are among the most zealous for the Lord. We see that negative side of the most zealous even among the apostles as Peter denies knowing the Lord on three occasions. And yet, since our earthly day-to-day behavior is thankfully not the measure of what saves us, we get this truly head-scratching statement from Yeshua in the book of Revelation 3, 14-17. Don't turn there, I'll just read it to you. He says this, To the angel of the Messianic community and Laodicea, write, Here is the message from the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know what you're doing. You're neither hot nor cold. How I wish you were one or the other. Because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I vomit you out of my mouth. For you keep saying, well, I'm rich, I've gotten rich. I don't need a thing. You don't know that you're the one who was wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Have you ever stopped to think about what Christ is communicating here? He is saying He has more acceptance for those who are super cold or super hot than for those who are slumbering comfortably in the middle and thinking everything is just fine. David ran super hot and super cold, but he was never on the fence. What is being identified and rejected by Messiah Yeshua is the lack of passion for God and thus the embracing of a comfortable but fruitless passivity. A passionless, passive believer is called by our Lord wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. How'd you like to stand before God? Be told that He sees you as wretched and pitiable all the while thinking you're well accepted and in good standing with the Almighty. You know, as humans, our passions will at times lead us to greatly pious works and at other times to greatly impious wrongs. David swung both directions with equal fervor. (laughs) But always he maintained his trust and devotion for God. And so God never vomited him out of my mouth. This is by no means a mulligan for a passionate believer to go out and do wrong and be prideful of it or smug in it 
Or as Paul put it, don't say, let's sin some more so that we can receive more grace. Rather, it is as Yeshua says, just a couple of verses later, in that same Revelation 3 chapter. Just down a few verses in Revelation 3.19 it says, But as for me, I rebuke and discipline everyone I love. So exert yourselves and turn from your sins. Exert yourselves. See, this is nothing more than the Revelation Messiah repeating in a more modern way the Shema of Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, 4-5 says, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, Adonai is God, Adonai is one. And you are to love Adonai, your God, with all your heart, all your being, all your resources. See, so here then is the scriptural definition of the term exert. For a believer to exert oneself is to love God with all of our heart, all of our being, all of our resources. Everything, all the time, in fullest measure. And this exertion is called passion and zeal in the Bible. It's an attitude and it's an action. So don't ever think that taking the nice, safe viewpoint that if I do nothing, I'll do nothing wrong. That although I'm not really active in serving God, I'm also not actively committing bad behavior or direct trespasses against God. Christ says that when it comes to living out our lives for Him, doing nothing is far worse than doing something wrong. He will rebuke and punish those zealots who do wrong. But it's because He continues to love you, not because He's rejecting you. On the other hand, for the utterly passive, non-passionate believer, it's you who are in the danger zone. Become passive, become indifferent enough, He will reject you. Where that line is, I don't know. But it's there. And I recommend we all stay far away from it. So as we continue to learn about King David, remember this. On the the passionometer, he was of the highest highs and the lowest lows. And God blessed him for his highs. And he cursed him for his lows. But never did God vomit him out of his mouth. David exerted himself. He had a burning passion for God. Even if much too often it became misdirected and he fell into sin. The God principle? Exert yourself in your relationship with the Lord.
Let's read 2 Samuel 19. Page 354 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Trembling, the king went up to the room over the gate, weeping and crying, Oh, my son Avshalom, my son, my son Avshalom, if only I had died instead of you, Avshalom, my son, my son. And Joab was told, The king's weeping, he's mourning for Avshalom. And thus the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day that the king was grieving for his son. So that the people entered the city furtively that day, the way that people who are ashamed creep away when fleeing a battlefield. And meanwhile the king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son, Avshalom, Avshalom, my son, my son. And Joab went inside to the king and said, Today you made all your servants feel ashamed. They saved your life today and the lives of your sons and daughters and wives and concubines, but you love those who hate you, hate those who love you. Today you said that princes and servants mean nothing to you. For I can see today that it would have pleased you more if Absalom had lived today and we had all died. Now get up, go out and speak heart to heart with your servants, for I swear by Adonai, that if you don't go out, not one man will stay with here, uh, here with you tonight. And that will be worse for you than all the misfortunes you suffered from your youth until now. So the king got up and he sat in the city gateway. And when all the people were told, now the king is sitting in the gate, they came before the king. Well, meanwhile, Israel had fled, each man to his tent. And throughout all the tribes of Israel, there was dissension among all the people. And they were saying, well, the king has delivered us from the power of our enemies and he saved us from the power of the Philistines, but now he has fled the land to escape Absalom. However, Absalom, who we anointed to rule us, is dead in battle. So now, why doesn't anybody suggest bringing the king back? When King David sent his message sent this message to Sadok and Eviatar the priests. Ask the leaders of Judah, why are you the last to bring the king back to his palace? The king's already heard that all Israel wants to return him to his palace. You are my kinsmen, my flesh and bone. Why are you the last to bring back the king? Also tell Amasa, you are my flesh and bone. May God bring terrible curses on me and worse ones yet if from now on you are not permanent commander of my army instead of Joab. Thus he turned the hearts of all the men of Judah around as if they were one man so that they sent a message to the king, Come back, you, all your servants. The king started back and arrived at the Jordan while Judah came to Gilgal in order to meet the king and bring the king over the Jordan. Shimei the son of Gerah the Benjamite from Bahrim hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him. Also Siva, the servant of the house of Saul with his fifteen sons and twenty servants and they rushed into the Jordan ahead of the king to ferry the king's household across and do whatever else the king wanted done. Shimei the son of 
Girah fell down before the king when he was ready to cross the Jordan and said to the king, May the Lord not hold me, uh, may my Lord not hold me guilty of a crime. Don't remember the wrong that your servant did on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king not take it to heart. For your servant knows I have sinned. Therefore, look, I'm the first one of all the house of Joseph to come today and go down to meet my Lord the king. Abishai the son of Zeruah answered, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? After all, he cursed Adonai's anointed ruler. But David said, What do I have in common with you, you sons of Zeruah? Why have you become my adversaries today? Should anyone in Israel be put to death today? Don't I know that today I am king over Israel? And then the king said to Shimei, You will not be put to death. And the king swore to him. Mephibosheth, the son of uh, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He hadn't cared for his legs, trimmed his beard, washed his clothes from the day the king had left until the day he had come home in peace. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, "Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth?" And he answered, "My lord king, my servant deceived me." I, your servant, had said, I'll saddle a donkey for myself to ride on and go with the king, since your servant is lame. But he slandered me, your servant, to my lord the king. However, my lord the king is like an angel of God, so you do whatever seems right to you. For all my father's household deserved death at the hand of my lord the king. Nevertheless, you placed your servant with those who eat at your own table. I deserve nothing more. So why should I come crying any more to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more about these matters of yours? I say you and Ziva divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, Indeed, let him take it all. For me it's enough that my lord the king has come home in peace. Now Barzillai the Giladi had come down from Roglim and passed on to the Jordan with the king to bring him across the Jordan. Barzillai was a very old man, 80 years old. He had provided for the king's needs when he was staying at Mahanaim, for he was a wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come across with me. I'll provide for your needs with me in Jerusalem." And Barzillai said to the king, How much longer can I live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I'm now 80 years old. Can I tell good from bad? Can your servant even taste what he eats or drinks? Can I hear the voice of men and women singing anymore? Why should your servant burden my lord the king? Your servant only wants to cross the Jordan with the king. Why should the king reward this so generously? Please, just let your servant go back and die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Kimam. Let him cross with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. The king answered, Himam will cross with me. I'll do for him whatever seems good to you. Whatever you ask of me, I will do for you. So all the people crossed the Jordan, and the king crossed too. The king kissed Barzillai, blessed him, and then he returned to his home. The king crossed over to Gilgal, and King Ham crossed with him. All the people of Judah brought the king across, as did half the people of Israel. 
Now all the men of Israel came to the king and said to him, Why have our kinsmen, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household across the Jordan and all David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why are you angry about this? Have we eaten anything at the king's expense? Has any gift been given to us? The men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king. Also, we have more right in David than you. So why do you despise us? Weren't we the first to suggest bringing our king back? But the men of Judah spoke more vehemently than the men of Israel. Well, Absalom is dead. And David is inconsolable. He's withdrawn into himself. He's turned bitter. Nothing else or anyone else matters. Life seems not worth the living. He's wandering around Mahanaim, weeping, crying out Absalom's name. This is not what the people or the army expected. And the general of David's victorious army, Joab, finds it grossly inappropriate that not only would Israel's king appear in public so weak and distraught, but that his ranting and desolation is causing the troops to feel ashamed instead of feeling vindicated. They don't deserve this. Rather, they deserve the king's admiration and thanks for winning a battle in which they were outnumbered and outmanned. And in verse 5, we have David putting a, a David covering his face and crying over Avshalom. Now this is not meant for us to picture David putting his face in his hands and weeping tears seeping through his closed fingers. The Hebrew word for covering used here is la'at. And it means to cover as in the sense of wrapping around or covering over. Rather, he covered his head, probably with a talit, a prayer shawl, or something similar. It was a customary mourning tradition for a Hebrew, male or female, to cover their heads and faces when grieving. We saw this same idea when David was fleeing Jerusalem back in chapter 15. There it said in verse 15, uh, verse 30, David continued up to the road of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, head covered and barefoot. And all the people with him had their heads covered and wept as they went up. So we're to understand that Joab's anger with David had mostly to do with David grieving when celebration should have been the order of the day. The rebellion has been put down. David is ready to resume, resume his throne, reassume his throne, but the army's conflicted. Have they done right? Or have they done wrong and now they're in for punishment? Morale is collapsing. And the disillusioned loyalist army is on the verge of disintegrating and, and going home. Verse 6 begins a conversation with Joab giving it to David with both barrels. But even though he felt free to unload upon the king, Joab did it in private as they went inside to a guardhouse of some sort. And Joab, as second in command, felt he had the right, not the duty, to snap David back to reality 
since he had commanded David's military now for well over two decades. In a nutshell, Yoav tells David that his priorities are seriously reversed. David hates those who love him and loves those who hate him. Now we must take this in the understanding of the times. This is not about the emotions of love and hate. This is political in nature. Okay? And in this era, love and hate were common political terms. Okay? The term to love meant to be loyal to the throne. The term to hate means to be disloyal to the throne, the opposition forces. In fact, you says Yoav, you're making it clear it would have pleased you more if Avishalom had survived, but all of David's loyal men had died and the battle for the kingdom was lost. Joab is essentially telling David that in a war between good and evil, only one side can win. There is no such thing as middle ground. You can't kill the army of the wicked usurper without also killing the usurper. This is a truth that modern day politicians, especially in the Western world, have completely abandoned. And it has brought nothing for us but incomplete victories. And we wind up having to refight the same wars and the same evil dictators over and over again with great loss of life to combatants and often innocent civilian populations. In fact, we no longer even want to frame modern wars as good versus evil. But rather in terms of political or social ideology. Oh, it's about way of life. David had become pure politician. He was more interested in the nuances of the outcomes. But Joab was a general, and he had no interest in anything but a decisive victory. So in verse 8, David is told to act immediately and stop this nonsense. Or he was going to wind up with no army at all. Now even the self-absorbed David understood that Yoav was right. So he went and sat at the city gate as a public display of being with his men, but it was most insincere. Well, now the narrative shifts to what's happening with the remainder of Absalom's forces. They fled, each going back to their own home within the tribal territory of whatever tribe they represented. It's here that we begin to see what is either a prophetic picture of the restoration of God's anointed Messiah to His own people. That is, of Messiah Yeshua to His own people, the Jews, who have generally rejected Him. Or, it's a story awfully full of very interesting parallels that at least reminds us of this coming restoration. My personal opinion is that it's prophetic. The ten northern tribes, most of which were supporting Absalom, they have a meeting. They discuss what to do now that their leader, Absalom, is dead and the rebellion's lost. 
And the thought is that even though David has essentially lost his crown and is now living across the Jordan still, he is the same man who years earlier fearlessly led the battle against the Philistines. He freed Israel from their oppression. Bottom line, hey, we could do worse. Even though their hope was for Absalom to be their new king since he is now dead, doesn't it make sense to invite David to come back into power? Thus the ten northern tribes reluctantly decided to make it known they wanted David to resume his monarchy over them. But David didn't want to return to power until his own people, Judah, also let it be known that they wanted him back. The two high priests who had remained loyal to David were apparently still back in Jerusalem. And so they sent, David sent word to them to assemble the leaders of the tribe of Judah and ask them, why hadn't they approached David about returning? After all, if the ten tribes wanted him back and they were not directly related to David other than through their ancient ancestor Jacob, why wouldn't his direct relatives, Judah, want him back so very much more? And then verse 13 has David making this poignant remark that ought to remind us of Yeshua and his torn relationship with his own people, the tribe of Judah. In verse 13 of chapter 19 of 2 Samuel, David says, You are my kinsman, my flesh and bone, so why are you the last to bring back the king? How can we not see Messiah in this? Listen to Matthew 23, verses 37-39. Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, you kill the prophets. You stone those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children just as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you refused. Look, God is abandoning your house to you leaving it desolate. For I tell you, from now forward, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. And we know from the New Testament that it will be the Jewish people who were really the first to accept Yeshua who will also be the last nation of people who finally re-accept their own Messiah. And one especially revealing scripture that explains that is contained in Romans 11. Romans 11, 25-27, where it says, For brothers, I want you to understand this truth, which God formerly concealed, but He's now revealed, so that you won't imagine that you know more than you actually do. It is that stoniness, to a degree has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters in its fullness. And that is in this way that all Israel will be saved. This way. And as the Tanakh says, out of Zion will come the Redeemer. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them 
when I take away their sins. So here we have a picture of David asking his own flesh and bone, his own tribe of Judah, why is it that of all people, you are the very last ones to invite me into your lives and to be God's anointed ruler over you when I return. The implication, of course, is that since Judah is David's tribe, why wouldn't they see the benefit in having one of their own as the king of God's kingdom? And Christ is asking exactly the same thing. And it's interesting to remember that it was among the Jews of the tribe of Judah that Absalom's rebellion against God's anointed King David began and only then did it spread to the other tribes. And of course that is how it was for Yeshua, God's eternal anointed King, that He was rejected by the leadership of His own tribe and then that rejection spread. Then in verse 14, David makes a terrible, a vindictive decision showing that he is still firmly stuck on that dark track that he's been on for some time. He asks Amasa, who was the general of Absalom's rebel army, to come and be his commander. After all, Amasa wasn't just a Judite, but he was a close relative to David on his sister's side. Okay. That said, Amasa was merely an illegitimate cousin. So David was firing his longtime loyal general, Yoaf, who won the battle for David and replaced him with the enemy commander who was routed. Why? Retribution. This was all about Joab allowing Absalom to be killed. What a slap in the face. Not merely to Yoav, but to David's entire army. All that being the case, David's overture to Judah succeeded in causing Judah to ask for David to return and be their king. Thus in verse 16 we find David on his way back to Jerusalem and leading the men and the leading men of Judah went out to meet him. Now this was far more than merely the Jewish welcome wagon. Okay. Notice that the place of David's crossing the Jordan was at Gilgal. At Gilgal, right here. This is the Jordan. Here's Gilgal. There were many good crossings to ford the Jordan. Why do it at Gilgal? Gilgal was nearly on the banks. This is a matter of a few hundred yards here. Um, nearly on the banks of the Jordan River. And it was historically in a very spiritually important place for Israel. It was here at Gilgal that Shaul had been anointed the first king of Israel. And it was also here that Samuel took the throne away from him. Gilgal had a sanctuary located there. And at this time it was in the territory of Benjamin, which seemed to be mostly allied with Judah, but it also had good relations with the ten northern tribes. Gilgal was, a, was holy for all 12 tribes. And although it's not specifically stated, 
The context makes it apparent that there was some sort of re-coronation ceremony at Gilgal for David. No doubt there was a major assembly of leadership of the 12 tribes to reaffirm David's resumption of his monarchy. This would have been needed because after all, essentially, this was a peace settlement in the aftermath of a civil war. Well, David's greeted by his kinsmen. He crosses over and he's instantly confronted by Shimei, the old man from the tribe of Benjamin who had cursed David and thrown dirt and rocks at him several weeks earlier. Now, we have in these next few passages a series of meetings with characters that David had met on his way out of Jerusalem as he headed for exile. Now this entire process is reversed as his restoration is underway and he meets these same people as he triumphantly returns. Now before we get into that, however, I'd like to show you yet another parallel, perhaps a prophecy, of Yeshua's return to his own land and his own people that's still in our future. You know, who among us hasn't tried to form a mental picture of the stunning end times prophecy as revealed to us in the book of Matthew that reads like this. Matthew 24, 23 through 27. At that time, if someone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe him. For there will appear false messiahs and false prophets performing even great miracles, amazing things, so as to fool even the chosen if possible. There, I've told you in advance. So if people say to you, listen, he's out in the desert, don't go. Look, he's hidden away in a secret room. Don't believe it. For when the Son of Man comes, it will be like lightning that flashes out of the east and fills the sky to the western horizon. Evangelical Christians quote this all the time, but it's always puzzled me. Since when does lightning flash from the east to the west? That's no more true in Israel than it is in Florida or anywhere else for that matter. So is that just an ancient Hebraic saying of some sort? There's no evidence of it being an old traditional saying. Rather, I think it's a prophetic fulfillment. But prophetic of what? Here we have David, the anointed king, returning to Jerusalem from what direction? From the east to the west. God's anointed is returning to the throne, but he's coming quickly from the east to the west. And as I've taught you since early on in Genesis, always pay attention to the direction east in the Bible. There's usually some important significance that's attached. I think Christ's return is being prophesied in 2 Samuel chapter 19 as David returns to Jerusalem right down to the direction of the return. We're going to see more evidence of this shortly. Well, in any case, the aged Shimei joins the leaders of Judah at the riverbank to greet David. And of course, Shimei's taking no chances. 
And he's accompanied by 1,000 of his fellow Benjamites. And guess who else shows up? Siva. Mephibosheth's estate steward. The one who brought David food and wine for his exodus. And told David that essentially his master Mephibosheth was just too busy to come and pay his respects to David. Besides, he considered this at the moment when the kingship would be returned to a member of Saul's family himself. Now recall that the hurt and angry David told Siva that as a result of this offense, all that belonged to Mephibosheth was now given to Ziva. No doubt the very thing Ziva had schemed for. Now Shimei, who had cursed David, was now in a pretty vulnerable position. The rebellion that he openly supported had failed. One of David's army commanders had wanted to behead Shimei for cursing David, but David decided not to since this exile was undoubtedly the handiwork of Jehovah, so it seemed wrong to kill the one who was merely carrying out God's will. Now, here is this old man throwing himself on the king's mercy, asking David to just please forget about this offense. Let me give you some background. You know, today when we think of cursing at someone, we think of just saying bad words at them as an insult, just kind of getting in our two cents worth. It offends the recipient, but it's just words. But in David's day, cursing was not about insults. It was very serious business. And it was designed to cause damage. It was a formal issuance of a divine curse. And it was meant to have a visible and tangible effect. It was believed that if a person took the strong action of issuing a curse against you, that it automatically invoked the name of that person's God, then it was likely that the nature of that curse would come to pass. It was expected that a curse would lead to something bad happening to the cursed person, and so issuing a curse isn't something that happened, except in the worst circumstance. That Shimei would be so bold as to issue a curse directly to the face of the king of Israel and still be left alive was an amazing show of restraint by David. But with David's victorious return, it also showed to Shimei that his curse held no power over David. So that unnerved Shimei. Now, here's Shimei asking for forgiveness for the usually unforgivable. Why would he think he ought to present himself to David rather than running into hiding and avoiding him? Actually, Shimei timed this event perfectly. Recall that I told you that David chose Gilgal to cross back over into the promised land because there would be a re-coronation ceremony. It was standard in the Middle East that on the day of a king's coronation, he would give out gifts to his subjects to start things off on the right foot. But it was also the practice that day pardons would be issued for crimes against the state. It's not at all unlike how here in the USA an outgoing president 
will, in his last few days of office, issue pardons to people concerning matters that would be too politically radioactive for a sitting president to deal with. But in David's day, that process was reversed. And it was the incoming leader who offered all the pardons. Shimei was assuming that David would not have him executed on the day of his coronation. However, Abishai, one of David's commanders, wasn't impressed. And he told David that Shimei should be summarily executed. And David responds in verse 23, where he says, But David said, What do I have in common with you, you sons of Zeruah? Why have you become my adversaries today? Should anyone in Israel be put to death today? Don't I know that today I am king over Israel? When David says that he knows that today I am king over Israel, it's meant to be taken literally. This conversation was immediately before or immediately following his recoronation ceremony at Gilgal. So David was merely following the long-standing tradition of a new king handing out pardons. But then David vows to Shimei that he won't be put to death. But David is not to be trusted on this. All David seemed to want anymore was to hang on to his bitterness and plot revenge. This pardon for Shimei was merely a political calculation accompanied with a clever technicality. When in a few more weeks we're going to begin our study of 1 Kings, we're going to read this in the second chapter. 1 Kings 2, verse 1. The time came near for David to die. So he commissioned Shlomo, Solomon, his son, as follows. I'm going the way of all the earth, therefore be strong and show yourself a man. So it's a few years later. David's on his deathbed. And Solomon is about to take over as king and David starts issuing his final instructions. A few verses down in this same chapter we read, Finally you have with you Shimei, the son of Gerah the Benjamite from Bahrim. He laid a terrible curse on me when I was on my way to Machanaim. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, so I swore to him by Adonai that I would not have him put to death with the sword. Now, however, you should not let him go unpunished. You are a wise man. You will know what you should do with him. You bring his gray head down to the grave with blood. Then David slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. David promised that he wouldn't execute Shimei, but he didn't promise that somebody else wouldn't execute him. So David commissions his son Solomon with this duty, and Solomon carries it out. We'll continue with this fascinating chapter next week.